proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I'm your host, as well as the pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen, and each week we have a confessional brother come share their wisdom and experience. In today's podcast, we have church replanter and author Mike McKinley, and Mike is the lead pastor of Guilford Baptist Church. He's also the author of Church Planting is for Wimps and Church in Hard Places, as well as many other titles. Mike, how you doing? Doing great. Doing could great. you could you give us uh, just a thirty second bio snapshot of who you are and what you've been doing? Yeah, so I uh, grew up outside of Philly in the the suburbs there. So I'm a, I'm a uh, frustrated and angry Eagles fan. Um, that's probably the most important thing to know about me. Amen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so been married to Karen for about eighteen years now. So we met when we were teenagers in college, and I've uh, been married for eighteen years. We have five kids, so two girls, three boys. Um, and uh, I pastor a, a church revitalization effort out in uh, Northern Virginia, so not too far outside of D.C. Awesome. Mike, each week we ask uh, the, the person that we're interviewing a series of questions that we call impacts and setbacks. It's primarily about who you're reading and who's helped you. Um, and so my first question to you is, who is your favorite old dead guy and why? Um, I think if you, if you frame it as favorite, I would have to say John Knox. Wow, the old, the old Scottish reformer. Yeah. So, uh, my oldest boy's named Knox, um, and uh, I think I stumbled on on him and his life and writings uh, right when I was getting out of college, and uh, I was just just struck by his uh, zeal for the Lord. So it's uh, I think it's the one thing I most admire in uh, in other people uh, is their their passion and, and fearlessness, and and Knox had it in spades. So I've tried to. Tried to learn from his his courage and his um, you know, fear the face of no man. So he would fit in in North Philly pretty well, wouldn't he? He he would. Uh, he was a Philly guy. He didn't know it, but <laughs> all right. And uh, what theologian would you say? Um, this would be modern day theologian. What modern day theologian do you think regularly punches you in the face? Kind of hits you with uh, something just in the sense of conviction. Yeah. Um, well, I think I probably answer that two ways. So in one way. Uh, uh, Martin Lloyd Jones. Um, so a lot of times I'll just run run my life through the filter of uh, you know if I have an idea sometimes I'll just think hey would would this make Martin Lloyd Jones want to punch me in the face um, <laughs> and uh, and a lot of times the answer is yes and I realize that's a stupid idea and I shouldn't do it but I think in terms of somebody I read a lot um, I think it'd be J.I. Packer mm. so um, just the way he uh, sort of synthesizes the the wisdom of the Puritans and the the reform tradition particularly and and puts it in such a, a sort of succinct and and clear way um just kicks my butt all the time yeah it's kind of sad to hear uh that J.I. Packer won't be writing any more books with the loss of eyesight and that's really hit me as well yeah um i guess the next question i have for you is just kind of get our listeners to understand you a little bit better is what theological topic would you say gave you the greatest difficulty in your development 
Well, that's a, that's a good one. I think um, so you can answer that a couple of different ways, but yeah, I, I think for me, uh, the sort of doctrine of sanctification, I think in terms of something that gave me the greatest difficulty practically, so maybe not the most sort of intellectually troubling, you know, I think probably, you know, where the, the origins of evil and, and suffering, that's probably intellectually the biggest struggle, but in terms of kind of working it out, I think just my, my doctrine of sin and sanctification and what is it, what does it look like exactly to uh, to grow in Christ? And even as a pastor, how do I how do I kind of balance out in the way I care for other people the the reality that you know sin is going to be with us in this side of glory, with the seemingly really high standards the Bible has for Christian conduct? And so that's always a, a um, an issue that I think is kind of on the ground, wrestling with it day in and day out. Was there a particular author that helped you through that, or a series of books, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think the the first I really started wrestling with it even as a college student, um, being being discipled by by Mark Dever. Um, I think the one thing I immediately noticed about him was that he had a higher standard for Christian conduct than anyone I'd ever met. Mm. Um, he not not so much that he was sort of legalistic, but rather that he actually just expected naturally that Christians would behave in certain ways, and that that really challenged me um, in my own life. I think. Um, you know, in terms of who I've read, uh, I think John Owen on the mortification of sin and sin and temptation. So we're just this morning, we have about uh, a group of about 30 guys from our church who get together and we're reading Owen um, and talking about sin. And, and it's just so, so wise and helpful. That's really helped me kind of start pulling apart, uh, you know, what that looks like in the Christian life. Wow. It seems like we've lost a lot of the focus of holiness today. Would you agree with that? I think so. I mean, just, just historically, I think the church has kind of struggled, you know, back and forth between, you know, legalism and, and antinomianism on the other hand. And it feels, it feels like, you know, sort of the cheap grace that Bonhoeffer was lamenting, you know, right. decades and decades ago is, is, is even cheaper now. Um, <laughs> so let's move into just, uh, just again, giving our listeners a little bit more background of who you are and your development what was your theological and what is your theological background and what was your journey into confessionalism? Yeah. So I grew up, um, in, in an unbelieving home until probably maybe around 11 or 12. My parents started going to church, um, for a whole host of reasons. And, um, so I was, I was converted there in a, um, a large non-denominational, uh, mega church, um, that had, it probably had some, PCA influences in it. Um, so that was, I remember hearing, uh, in, in a Sunday school class when I was maybe in eighth grade, um, there was a, an older gentleman who's, um, still, still around and still an influence and a mentor to me. Um, and he taught, you know, taught these eighth graders, uh, the five points of Calvinism. And, um, he said, you're going to hear a lot of stupid things taught, but I just want you all to know, like the, the truth of the Bible teaches. And, um, so that was probably the first real theological thought I remember having um, was wrestling with what he was what he was saying, um, and then that church was really faithful to the gospel, but but pretty pretty thin theologically, except for this kind of one older guy who was sort of waging this war um, on his own. <laughs> um, and so I really didn't have many theological, you know, reflections. Um, and when I got to college, uh, was as I mentioned, uh, was being discipled by, by Mark Dever. And he was the one who really exposed me to, 
to reformed spirituality, reformed theology kind of properly. Um, and for me, it was like somebody came in and just flipped all the lights on in the room. So I remember, um, you know, I, I, I knew I loved Jesus, wanted to be a Christian, but just didn't really have any, any way to make sense of the Christian life and what the Bible taught. Um, and it was through, um, I remember reading uh, Stott's Basic Christianity, reading Packer's Knowing God and, and um, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, starting to read the Puritans, um, uh, John Piper, those guys, that it just suddenly was like the, the, the Bible started making sense to me and like how the Bible applied to my life uh, started making sense to me. So that was kind of how I um, kind of moved from a sort of more shallow theological understanding into, into really loving it. Now, I know that um, a lot of listeners picked up on a name you said, Mark Dever, and I got to tell you, the very first time I met him was in Toledo, Ohio, at a very small uh, conference. It was a reform conference on theology, and I, he stood up to say, hey, I'm going to preach through the book of Romans today. And literally, he preached from the beginning of Romans to the end of Romans. And at first, when he said that, I thought, there's no way he's going to be able to do this. And I was blown away by his ability to handle the text and just keep us on point and show us the way in which that the book of Romans all fit together. What, how did you get involved with Mark? And tell us a little bit about that relationship early on. Yeah, so I was a, um, a uh, sophomore in college. I had a pretty, um, a pretty bad freshman year, kind of for all the stereotypical reasons, uh, spiritually speaking. Um, and when I, when I went back to school for my, my sophomore year, um, after kind of having my, having my butt kicked, um, my freshman year, I said, you know, I need to find a church, uh, and I need to find somebody who'll mentor me. Um, but I didn't really, uh, I hadn't really found a church in my freshman year that I could really, that I really liked and plugged into. And that was probably mostly my own sort of pride and indifference. But, um, I met Mark, uh, he was on campus speaking to one of the Christian, um, groups there on campus. He was not yet the pastor there at Capitol Hill where Baptist where he is now. Um, but he was a couple of weeks from being installed there. And, uh, so I wound up actually just riding in the elevator out of the building with him. And, uh, and he asked me where I went to church and I told him, well, I think I'm gonna come to your church on Sunday. So he gave me his card and said, look, I've just, you know, I'm just in town. I'm not even the pastor of this church yet. I've only got 70 old people. They don't really need me. So uh, why don't you come over and have breakfast, you know, on the hill sometime? And so I called him up, made an appointment. We had uh, we had breakfast at a local restaurant and uh, pretty much once or twice a week for the next three years, he met up with me and read the Bible. I joined the church there, watched him begin to turn it around. Um, and so, yeah, he was he was probably the major sort of shaping spiritual influence in my life. You also did a residency at Capitol Hill. What was that residency and what did that look like? Yeah, so they have they have a formal uh, internship plan um, or a program where they bring in twice a year. They bring in classes of six guys um, and run them through. Basically, it's like an ecclesiology boot camp uh, there. So I didn't I didn't actually take part in that program, um, but I was on staff there for a year, kind of preparing and uh, getting poured into kind of preparing to, to church plant. Uh, so that just involved a lot of a lot of reading, a lot of. Um, you know, meeting with other pastors in the area to kind of get their wisdom. Um, a lot of time with Mark, just you know, talking about church planting and church revitalization and those kinds of things. In the reality, you were kind of like the guinea pig before all that got going, right? 
Yeah, yeah. So they had the they had the uh, the internship up and running, but in terms of church planting, I was the the first one to kind of go through it. So um, I think part of my role was to to make the mistakes the first time around, so that the the, the future guys could could benefit from that. Now, the first time I heard your name was um, I myself am involved in church vitalization and was uh, kind of struggling through to find other books that were kind of written in this century about revitalization and the importance of it. And somebody threw your book, uh, Church Planting is for Wimps, at me. And as I began to, to read it, it just, it, man, it just spoke to me. And it really shouted to me in a lot of ways the things and the steps that you took through that process. So I'd like to talk a little bit about your revitalization there um, in Virginia at Guilford Baptist. And this church was founded in 1890, if I'm correct. Actually, even even earlier than that, 1857. Oh, wow. Okay. And it's in Sterling, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And what's the context like around where the church is at? Yeah, so I mean, up until about maybe 25 years ago, this was like a, a rural community. Um, so as the, uh, as the government keeps expanding and particularly as the military keeps expanding, um, there are more and more defense contractors, you know, IT infrastructure contractors, all those kinds of things keep kind of expanding. Um, so we're right out by Dulles airport, which is about 45 minutes outside the city proper. And uh, so that the, the the sort of DC um, megalopolis just keeps getting kind of bigger and bigger and bigger. And so what used to be a really sleepy rural community is now the fastest growing county in America. Um, and so you know, just everything has changed uh, here. So it's the wealthiest county in America now uh, because of all these sort of two income uh, families, you know, working for the most part government and IT jobs. Um and so it's just all completely changed. So you have some kind of old school people that were here, you know, in the sixties when this was a sleepy little rural community. Uh, and then our particular neighborhood um, in God's providence is uh, overwhelmingly Latin American immigrants. So uh, you have an incredible amount of wealth in the sort of larger area, um, but Sterling park kind of where we are um, the local school in our neighborhood, 95% uh, of the kids don't speak English at home. And something like 90% meet the federal uh, guidelines for poverty and about 10% meet the federal guidelines for homelessness. So we've got a, uh, a huge sort of gang problem, prostitution problem, uh, immigrant services problem, like right in the middle of this incredibly wealthy uh, community where really no one has lived for more than 20 years. So it's a, it's a strange place to do ministry. No, how did you end up going to this community? What tell us about that call and that uh, the receiving of that call? Yeah, it was it was you know the 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 easy answer is just the, the providence of God. Um, but you know, in terms of the way that worked out, I remember um, so when when Capitol Hill called me when I was in seminary um, up at Westminster in Philadelphia, uh, they said you know we want you to plant a church for us. We're thinking you know Northern Virginia, kind of Sterling area. I didn't know anything about the area. Um, but just kind of quickly looking on the map, I saw, you know, this is the fastest growing county. This is the wealthiest county in America. And I thought that's that's really not where I want to do ministry um, because, you know, I'm just sort of geared and wired towards, uh, you know, working with the poor, working in kind of more urban context. Um, but we really felt like the Lord was calling us to do it. And so I remember talking to uh, one of the professors at Westminster, a guy named uh, Dr. Ortiz, who was a, a church planter. 
And I remember complaining to him, like, you know, Dr. Ortiz, I, I, you know, I want to work with this kind of people, but, you know, I'm, it feels like the Lord's leading me to out into this wealthy community. And I just don't, I'm not sure what's going on there. Um, and his, his, uh, his words to me were just, well, look, wherever there's, wherever there's rich people, there's poor people mowing their lawns. So like, why don't you find those people as well? And, uh, and, and find a way to reach them. Um, so I remember thinking that and thinking that sounded interesting. Um, but when we started kind of putting together our church planting team to come out to Northern Virginia, to come out to Sterling, um, so from Capitol Hill Baptist, we found this little, uh, little Baptist church that had been around, as I said, since the 1850s. Um, it had dwindled down to about, you know, maybe 10 people on a Sunday. They hadn't had a pastor for about a year and a half. The building was falling apart. The church had really been in steady decline for about 20 years. Um, and so, uh, somebody knew that we were planting a church out in this, in this area, uh, and just said, Hey, you should talk to these guys. And over the course of about maybe six to nine months, we just had a lot of conversations and, and had them pray and think about whether they wanted to do it. And finally we pulled the trigger so that they, instead of us starting a new church, you know, cause we just told them, look, we could, we could start a new church in your backyard and just sit here and watch you die. Uh, or we could work together and, and see if we can get this church. Uh, up and running again. And so finally, uh, they took some convincing because, you know, they didn't, they didn't know me or us, but um, finally they, they signed on to it. Wow. And how many were in your core team when you began that journey? Uh, we had, we had seven adults. So seven adults, and these were highly committed, highly focused individuals. These weren't new converts or anything. Yeah, no, they were all, none, I don't think any of them were new converts. Um, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say we were the church planting dream team. Um, uh, it was more like seven people who were willing to come out with us. Um, so uh, we didn't really, in that sort of initial group, didn't really have any uh, elders or um, you know even sort of natural evangelists or anything like now. As I'm, and now as our church is planting new churches, you know, the kind of things we're looking to kind of put together on a team. We didn't. We didn't really have that, but we had some servant-minded people that wanted to see a church established and that loved the Lord, and and uh, and the Lord used those folks uh, mightily to to get the church up and running again. And Manny Ortiz is who you're referring to, and he's the one who wrote with Harvey Kahn, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah there, there's a, quite a few books that are out there specifically about um, about planting and, and and ministry and in poor urban context. Um, you made a decision with your wife when you moved in there not to buy right away. You actually rented for a year. Was that? I know that a lot of guys, when we work with planters, the in, the their their instinct is let's get let's get settled, let's hurry up and get situated. But you made a strategic decision to rent. Could you explain why you did that? Yeah, you know, I think most of it was just it was a, it was strategic because we weren't all that strategic. So in a sense, <laughs> I think maybe a wiser, better person could figure all these things out in advance, but. But I just kind of knew that I didn't really understand the community very well. And so I thought probably the best thing I could do is live here um, for a little bit before we and then and then kind of figure out where the best place to put roots down would be. Um, and that that turned out to be a good decision uh, as we kind of, you know, because our, our town is basically split up into, you know, a poor, poorer, more Latin American side of town, the older part of town, uh, and then wealthy kind of McMansion part of town. Um, so it was just helpful for me to be able to kind of live here for a little bit, see that, see where ministry was happening. And then we could kind of strategically choose to live in the middle of, of the, the harvest field, so to speak. Okay. Now, how did you begin when you began to take this, 
this vision of planting and now you're immersing it in this uh, existing church with these individuals that were already kind of accumulated. How did, how did that change begin to happen and what did that look like? Yeah. So I remember when, um, when I was talking to them about, you know, what it might look like for us to, to partner together and revitalize the church, you know, they were asking me, okay, so what are your, like, what are your plans? What are your, what are your programs? What are your strategies? Um, and I, you know, I basically told them, uh, my really, my only strategy is to, uh, is to basically preach and teach the Bible, um, as faithfully as I can. Um, and then we're going to see what God does if we all start to live it out and, and believe it. And, um, you know, both in our community, uh, here as the church, as we take it out into the wider community. Um, so really that was my main, my main strategy was just to begin, begin preaching and then just kind of doing the things the Bible tells us to do, which, you know, hospitality, evangelism, um, discipleship, those, those kinds of things. So it was really very, very sort of unstrategic in the sense of, you know, you read books on church planning, they tell you a million ways to, you know, do things, but we really just, we just read the Bible, taught the Bible, you know, did things churches are supposed to do and, and prayed a lot and asked God to, to, to light it on fire. Can you give us a story maybe of one of those early successes and seeing God's hand through ministries of hospitality and maybe something else just in the, in the context there? Yeah, I mean, I I can think of a, a bunch of different uh, different things, um, but I, I remember um, you know, we used to basically have the whole church over to our house for a meal after you know services on Sunday. We get together, and then just basically anyone who was there was invited back to our house to to eat and just spend the afternoon together. And I think um, you know those were the hardest days in terms of everything felt very uh, um, like it was on the uh, on the precipice of disaster, any given moment, you know, nothing felt sort of secure and stable at those times, um, compared to now, you know, almost 11 years later, things feel established and safe, but those, those were the best, I mean, those were the best days in many ways, just that, um, you know, spending all day with people from the church, you know, with unbelievers kind of joining us and getting plugged into, uh, into what the life of the church looked like. And so, um, you know, I think one of the one of the things that we saw early on was that the Lord was going to work through us to reach Spanish speaking people uh, in the area. So I just remember um, not neither my wife uh, uh, nor I speak any Spanish, so um, which is just a, an irony. But um, yeah, you know, I remember having you know this maybe seven or eight guys on this one work crew over to our house uh, for dinner one night, and we had some bilingual people there, and just um, you know just hearing their stories and. Uh, telling them about the love of Jesus for them. And just, it was a, it was a really sweet. And I remember one guy walking out said, uh, he said, you know, I've been in this country for seven years now. And he's like, I've never been in the home of like, a, of a white American. Wow. Except to paint or you know, do some work, but sure. no one's ever, like no one's ever invited me to like eat with them before. Um, and that, I just remember thinking like, that's, that's both sad. And it's, it's also the gospel that would move us towards that. And so I think he began to see the love of Jesus you know, just practically in the life of the church and in, and in the hospitality of the church there. Wow. Now, there's a lot of guys who step out and their intention is to plant. And it looks like God redirected you to really replanting an older church. What are some of the benefits of replanting as opposed to just planting? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we make it our goal um, to, to replant if we can um, when, we're, when we're thinking about church planting. 
Um, so that's our preference. It, it was our preference when I was at Capitol Hill. That was kind of our stated thing. If we can revitalize a church in Sterling, we're going to go for that. Um, if not, then we will we'll just go ahead and plant from scratch. Um, and even now, as we're sending out teams from our church, you know, our preference is to revitalize if we can. And I think because the advantage is there, um, there, there are some practical ones and some spiritual ones as well. I mean, just practically speaking, there's there's a whole lot of infrastructure in place um, in a in an existing church that, um, you know, as a planter, you have to kind of create from whole cloth. Um, so that can be really, there's a lot of resources oftentimes that are, that are bound up in existing churches that aren't being, um, sort of mobilized and utilized for the spread of the gospel. So those are, those are just some practical reasons. Um, but I think also there's a, um, a sense in which a, a dying church tells the world that Jesus is irrelevant. And so if we can come along and, and revitalize that, you know, get the witness of the church up and running again, uh, in many ways, it's kind of a spiritual, a spiritual two for one, because not only do you put up a gospel witness in a community where there, there isn't one right now, but you're also removing a bad witness to the gospel. Um, and so that can be really helpful. Now, I know that when you decided to do this, and you felt called and you're, you're engaging this, you're bringing your family along with you. And at this time, is it just you and your wife? Is it, do you have any children? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So we had, um, my wife was pregnant with our third, uh, child when we started out. So he, so he was born, Phineas was born maybe three months after we started out here. So my, my oldest was probably two and a half or three, um, maybe probably two and a half actually when we, when we started at the church, I had a, we had a baby and another one on the way. Okay. And how would you say your family handled the journey of revitalization? Um, you know, I think that was a, a major challenge for us. Um, you know, we saw it, it actually became a really um, a difficult situation. And I talk about this a little bit in the, the church planning book. Um, but one of the things I didn't really anticipate or prepare myself well for was, um, you know, just the effect that, that this would have on my marriage. Um, so that, that was one of the things that really, really surprised me was just how much the temptation to make an idol out of ministry to kind of neglect or, you know, presume upon my wife, um, and, and pour all my energy and focus into, uh, the church, um, would really, uh, impact our marriage. There were some other circumstances with my wife's health and some other things that kind of all came together at once. And it was like, we were just in the crucible of planting a new church you know, having our, our third child, um, you know, dealing with this, this health concern and a bunch of different things. It was like all at once, you know, just like all of the sin just kind of came bubbling to the surface. Uh, the Lord just used that to, to really expose some things in my heart that I didn't realize were there. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I think that's an important point for, um, planters, replanters to really be considering in all of this is that your primary focus is your family. And, uh, um, and you, you can't be healthy in planting a church, uh, or replanting a church if your family's not healthy. So that's, that's an important aspect. I know your book hits on that. Um, I want to move to your book. I want to talk about church planting is for wimps. And one of the reasons it really ministered to me is because I'm in revitalization as well, as I've stated already. And I've always made this statement. I say church planting is sexy, but revitalization is being married to the old lady with warts. 
<laughs> you just pray every day. You keep falling more and more in love with her. Yeah. Um, a lot of times when I talk to planters, I explain that, you know, in planting, it's like a speedboat. There's just a few of you and you can make a lot of quick turns. But in re revitalization, especially in some cases like mine, where you're taking a lot of people with you, it's like moving a barge and it's a lot of slow turning and uh, it can uh, any change can upset some. And then there's you're not changing fast enough, which can bother others. And so there's a lot of complexity there. But there's also a lot of benefit and blessing into seeing an older church come back to life and being back on mission. Um, I guess one of the first things I want to talk to you about is what really spoke to you as saying, hey, I need to write this down. I need to share this story and what God's been doing with others. Was that somebody else's suggestion? Was that something that just was bubbling up inside of you? How did you come to that decision? Yeah, well, you know, I, I figured I was um, I was 33 and had four years of pastoral experience, so I figured it was, it was really time to write my memoirs. Uh, <laughs> You know, had so much wisdom to share with the world. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, you know, no, I think I think part of it was was my experience being a guinea pig. Um, so you know, Capitol Hill and and Mark's ministry are obviously um, you know connected with and associated with Nine Marks Ministries, and it's it's a particular sort of philosophy of ministry. Um, and so, you know, we really were trying to see or, or flesh out what does it look like to do, you know, church planting or church revitalization, kind of you know along along with these principles. Um, in terms of why I, I wrote the book, I think two things mainly. One was my uh, just experience of talking to church planters. So really anytime a church planter or revitalizer would would send in a question or ask for a conversation with somebody at Nine Marks, they would just kick them out to me because I was kind of like supposed to be the church planting guy. Um, and so I wound up realizing that, you know, I was having the same conversations with every single guy. Mm. I, was tell I was telling the same stories and... You know, making the same points. And I realized like, you know, maybe there's, you know, maybe it makes sense just to write this down if that would be helpful to people. Um, and then the other thing I think was just my frustration with some of the, some of the church planning books that were out there. Um, not that I think there's lots of great books, but just some, so much of the kind of church planting and church revitalization um, uh, sort of wisdom is just seems so, so backwards to me. Um, and so, and, and, I saw the bad effects as I got to know other church planters in the area. I saw just like the something like just the pressure for quick, obvious, measurable, quantifiable growth. Um, you know, just unrealistic expectations about the amount of impact you were going to have in a community. Um, del just frankly, delusions of grandeur um, that it seemed like some of the, a lot of the church planting literature was was feeding. Um, I could see it just kind of killing guys. And I thought, what if somebody wrote a book and just told the truth instead of, you know, instead of uh, just telling the sort of triumphant stories or, hmm. or telling, or even telling, um, telling stories of like kind of failing up, you know, like right. a lot of, you know, where I'm going to sort of humbly tell you how I messed up and then the Lord used it to make my church 30,000 people, um, <laughs> you know, but what if someone's actually like, yeah, actually I'm pastoring a church of a couple hundred and it's a, it's a mess and I don't know what I'm doing half the time, but the Lord's in it. And that's, you know, pretty much what we're supposed to expect. So, um, so I just kind of wanted to get that perspective out there and if it'd be helpful to anybody. Now, kind of working through the book, one of the first things you say that you really took on there at the church was you began to clean up the membership list. Why did you focus in on that? And why was that kind of the starting point? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, it's so essential for, for, you know, if you're thinking about church revitalization, you know, to know, like, who we are exactly. Um, 
So if you're thinking about trying to reestablish a corporate witness in a community, um, if you're trying to establish kind of body life, it's just really important to know, okay, who, who actually is part of us. And so when you inherit an existing church where only 10 people are attending, um, the, it's, it's likely that there's actually far more people that actually think of themselves as part of the church, but just aren't engaged in any kind of meaningful way. And so even as I started kind of going out and about town, when, you know, I'd get into conversations with people and they'd find out that, you know, I was pastor of, of Guilford, particularly if they'd been around in town for a while, everyone knew it. Um, uh, everyone knows the church and people be like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a member there actually. Uh, or, you know, I was baptized there. And so I'm a member there. And just began to realize that, you know, as I talk to folks, we actually need to be much clearer about, okay, actually this is Guilford Baptist Church. Like these people are the ones that are committed here, you know, under the authority of the leadership, um, you know, or working forward to see the the ministry expand. And so it just seemed really helpful to kind of get that clear up front. Well, it's so true because I know even in my church, which was planted in 1903, when I was here um, just starting about 10 years ago, they had a membership list of like 850 people, but our average attendance was maybe around 300. And so you see these inflated numbers and no pastor wants to be the guy that is the one that taking names off the rolls. We all want to be the one adding names, right? And so following the steps of your book, I really began to say, hey, we need to do this because it develops a healthy core. Who's really with us? Who's who's really part of us? Who really can vote and make decisions upon uh, the budget and things like that? Because in our system, that is a voting uh, aspect that the the membership has. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as also the leadership, uh, choosing the elders uh, of the church. And so if we don't have those things uh, and th- that, that locked into the right people, that can be very problematic as you try to bring about change. Because it's funny how people will come out of the woodwork immediately when you say you might take their name off the roll. Um, it's just a, it's an interesting point that I thought you really brought out well in the book about the importance there of membership lists and, and the yeah. importance of cleaning them up. Yeah, especially as a, as a pastor, you know, if, if you know, Hebrews 13 says that, you know, we'll, we'll give an account for our, our shepherding of the flock. You know, what, who exactly am I supposed to be shepherding? You know, what, what, what flock is it that I'm going to be held accountable for? So, you know, if you think about 800 people, you, there's an old, uh, an old uh, English pastor, John Brown, was, uh, was writing a letter to one of his sort of young disciples in the ministry. And uh, he said, ba- basically paraphrasing, he said, look, I know the vanity of your heart and I know your pride. And so I know you're going to look out over your, your little congregation and you're going to think that it's far too small a thing. But he said, you know, just take it on the advice of an old man that when you stand before the Lord, like you will not think you've had too, too few. Uh, and so I think in that sense, like being the guy who takes the people off the roll is actually is actually really good. If it means sort of whittling it down to the people that that I know and can kind of um, can, can sort of responsibly like give an account for. One of the first documents you say that you began to change was the mission statement. And it wasn't for the reason that the reader immediately expects, which is we always hear, let's clean up the mission statement, get the church back on mission. Uh, you actually quote in your book, you're quoting uh, Malfurus when you say, I believe the major reason why 80 to 85% of the churches in America are in trouble is because they don't have a clear, compelling mission. And so I'm immediately expecting you to say, yeah, let's clean up the mission statement. But what you did is you removed it. You got rid of it. You said the mission statement is nothing. Tell us about that and why you did that. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, part of that's just because I'm 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 a contrarian and a jerk. Um, <laughs> but you know, I do think, uh, and, and part of it's probably just a reaction to growing up in a in a mega church where, you know, all those sort of like tools of business were the uh, were the sort of assumed way to 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 run things. And so I'm actually, I'm actually not opposed to like churches that having clarity about you know, what it is that they're doing. Um, you know, I think hopefully, you know, we strive to have clarity about what it is that we're, you know, doing and how we do it. But I do, I do think this, you know, this, um, this language of mission and vision, it can be a bit of a, it can be a bit of a red herring in some ways. Um, I was actually attending a, um, a, a, a meeting of uh, where we do international missions through a uh, church planting network. And so we're kind of networked in with church planting churches all around the world. And we kind of cooperate together to see new churches planted. And so um, we get together uh, every six months. And so I was just listening to uh, a brother, a dear brother uh, from Myanmar talk about uh, church planting. And so he's presenting to a bunch of Westerners and uh, you know, he puts up a, a slide and it says, you know, our mission is, and our vision is, and, I thought, my gosh, is this what we've like exported, you know, to the wider world is like this idea that, you know, the most important thing you can tell us about your churches is their mission and vision statement. So all, all of which is to say, I think those things are fine, but I do think they sometimes serve for churches as crutches. Like we spend so much time thinking about how to word them and repeating them to people and saying them that we never actually get around to doing anything. Hmm. Um, so to me, it's like, you know, what? I think I'm just going to, instead of kind of giving the church that crutch, I think we're just going to actually read the Bible. And, uh, you know, our, our mission statement pretty much turns out to be the Great Commission, you know, which is what every, every good, decent mission statement is basically just another way of stating the, the Great Commission. Um, but, like, what if we actually just did that and focused more on, on living out what Scripture tells us to do more than sort of making sure everyone in the church has memorized the vision and, and mission statement and that we're always, you know, reinforcing that to people? It just felt a bit, it felt a bit like, a, like something to hide behind, and so I just didn't want to do that. Another big difference you bring out in your book is uh, the difference between what I see between planters and those who are involved in uh, revitalization is what you said here. You said uh, members of the church should agree that the Bible is true, but they don't have to agree on what it means at every turn. And I've noticed with church planters, they want to, you know, they want everybody to agree. They want to keep everybody as tight a huddle as possible. But here you're saying, hey, that's not the, that's not the issue. The issue isn't that we agree at every turn, but that we're all agreeing that the Bible is our foundation. It is, it is our, uh, it is our source of where we're going from. Explain and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's there's different ways to create um, unity in a church, um, and so you can have a lot of unity that's based around kind of everyone holding the same opinion on all sorts of secondary matters. So, I mean, I think that's that's certainly what we see at, at work in like churches that are more of like a fundamentalist bent where there's a, a sort of wide uniformity um, throughout the church on secondary issues. So everyone in the church has agreed on how, um, you know, what, what men's hair should look like, uh, whether women can wear pants or not, uh, how to school, educate your children, uh, what music to listen to, all those things. So that, that, is, that is a way to create unity in the church. Um, but I think actually what we can do even better uh, by creating unity in the church around, like as you said, around the truth of the Bible and around the, the sort of the gospel message at the heart of it. And then actually a lot of things, you know, the Bible actually doesn't really tell us 
much in terms of like specifics on like what you should wear every day. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're actually going to allow some diversity on that to realize that Christians can disagree and come to different conclusions and still love the Lord. So obviously certain things are, you know, there's no way to, you can't really have a disagreement about adultery. Um, but if we believe the Bible is true, then actually we're going to make intentionally kind of not have uniformity uh, in all the other areas that the Bible is not clear on. So, um, you know, we believe that, for example, you know, the Bible teaches that, you know, the husband is the head of the wife um, and that wives should submit to their husbands. But we realize that the sort of way that gets played out in a marriage may look different for different couples. Um, and we're not going to insist that, therefore, that always means it looks exactly like this, because frankly, the Bible doesn't tell us um, a lot of, of specifics beyond that whatever headship looks like, it ought to look like Christ loving his church. So those, those kinds of things where you see in other churches, sometimes there's a, a tendency to create sort of rules beyond the Bible uh, that you need to, to obey. And so we're just trying to avoid that so that it makes it all the more clear when you have a bunch of people who don't agree on anything else, but they do agree on the gospel and they're together in a church loving one another. It makes it really clear that the gospel is actually the thing. Hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I really appreciate that. Um, in the book, you get a little bit further in and you say that uh, the last document you wanted to overhaul was the Constitution. And I know you mean because just the the overwhelming res you know responsibility there. But you, but you also stress that you understand that how you structure your leadership directly impacts the discipleship and spiritual livelihood of the saints. And so in that process of reconstructing the Constitution, you really um, – just dusted off in a lot of ways uh, on uh, their 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 confessional standard, but explain that explain that journey a little bit for us. Yeah, so we we um we overhauled our our really the entirety of our church all of our church documents. So um, the statement of faith, the church covenant, and the the kind of bylaws, um, and uh, we did about two or three years before the before I got to the church. Um, the church had rewritten its statement of faith, um, which, you know, if, if nothing else useful comes out of this conversation, like just pretty much never write your own statement of faith for a church, because, Amen. you know, um, un un unless you're, unless you're like a trained theologian, like you just, <laughs> you will, you will make at least 11 major sort of Christological heresies unintentionally, um, just by putting a comma in the wrong place. Um, <laughs> but it just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't very well done, I guess would be the more serious way of saying it. Um, and there were lots of really specific things in there on issues where it just didn't seem wise to divide the body. So for example, um, you know, if we're going to really use this and, and be a confessional church where everyone in the church believes, you know, what our statement of faith teaches, well, either we're going to say we can only have, you know, pre-trib, pre-mill, you know, believers in our church, or we're going to have to remove that statement and say, again, people can love the Bible, love Jesus, and have a difference of opinion on this issue. We don't need to agree on it to be part of the same church. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so what we did basically was was dust off the New Hampshire Confession, um, which is the, the um, was almost certainly the statement of faith that the church used when it was, when it was founded in the 1850s. And so that was sort of helpful just kind of politically to say, we're actually not changing, you know, to something radically new. We're kind of going back to what's sort of been historically the case uh, and also had the benefit of being a really good statement of faith. 
Well, see, and that again was another area that you touched on in the book that really spoke to me. Being from a Presbyterian background, ours was the Westminster Confession, but our church had become so pragmatic, what works, let's do that, that they kind of journeyed away from that. And so in our revitalization, it was dusting that off and bringing us back to that. Um, the Why the New Hampshire? Why did you say, I'm going to go there and not go to the 1689? Yeah, so I love the excuse me. I love the 1689. Um, super, super useful. Um, but in terms of a, a statement of faith for our congregation, I said because we do want everyone in the church to be able to affirm it, um, we wanted a you know a a more mere confession. So we really wanted a confession where we could say, um, okay, if you're if you're a Christian and you're an evangelical Christian. And you're an evangelical Christian who's a Baptist, particularly. This is pretty much what you believe, um, and we there's not tons of room for disagreement. So there's a statement in there about the Sabbath um, that uh, that we've removed, just because we felt like that was probably one issue that uh, we didn't want to divide the body on. Um, but pretty much everything else in the New Hampshire Confession is is pretty unremarkably kind of evangelical Christianity. So so your goal was really to be as inclusive as possible and then to have a very strict view of subscription to it. Is that a fair? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way that's a good way to put it. So basically, you know, with the exception of the of the the Baptist uh language, you know, which obviously is not the most important thing, but it is kind of essential for for church life to be agreed on on that particular issue. Um, you know, everything else is is kind of a a deal breaker. Um so we did. We wanted to be as inclusive as possible. I like that language, um, and then and then strict in terms of subscription. Hmm. Now, how did you begin to teach it or reteach it to your people? Yeah, so I think the context was just in a, an adult Sunday school. So I just taught kind of article by article through. Um, so the one one down, it's a it's a plus and a and a it's a it's a strength and a weakness in terms of using the New Hampshire. So the language is a bit um, old fashioned and, and archaic, um, which can be a little off-putting to people, but also some of it is so beautiful and uh, well-worded that it actually, the fact that it's it's uncommon language actually kind of highlights and draws attention to it. So just walked through it kind of article by article, explaining, answering questions, clarifying, um, you know, until the church felt like, yeah, we had a pretty good grasp. It took us a while. I think it took us you know, the better part of a year to get all the way through it. Um, but by the end of that, I think the church had a pretty good grasp that yeah, this is what we believe, and this is this is what the confession teaches. How many elders do you currently have with you, and then what is their relationship to it? Are they not only expected to subscribe to it, um, do they subscribe to anything else? Yeah, so um, just until maybe a month or two ago, we had nine elders, but then had three drop off sort of suddenly for different reasons. Um, so we're down we're down to six now, but our um, we we prefer to idle up closer to ten. Um, but, uh, certainly they would need to, to, uh, subscribe to the New Hampshire confession. We don't have anything particularly beyond that. Um, there, uh, there may be some kind of cultural issues that we'd be particularly sensitive to, um, things like complementarianism, um, views of, of, uh, so gender, homosexuality, those kinds of things that are, I think, implied in the statement of faith, um, and sort of flow necessarily from it, but we'd want our, our elders to be particularly, because those are kind of cultural, um, you know, hot buttons and, and pressure points. You know, we'd want our elders to go to lead particularly well on that. 
Um, so I, I personally am a, a five point Calvinist. I would say probably, you know, the vast majority of our elders are as well, but we don't make that a, uh, an absolute standard, um, for, for being an elder. Does that ever come into play where you have some tension because of that? You had disagreement on those type of things? No, not really. There's, I mean, there's, um, there are some elders who, who hold slightly divergent uh, views on, on some theological issues, but it's, well, we can have really good conversations about that, but there's a lot of, they're, they're all really mature guys. They love the Lord, love the church. Um, they're very gentle men. Um, and so uh, we've been able to have good conversations about areas of disagreement without that sort of poisoning the well or affecting um, you know, philosophy and ministry or anything like that. So it hasn't, hasn't been an issue at all. Now, how are your elders chosen? Is are they chosen by the other elders? Are they chosen by the congregation? How does that come about? Yeah. So what we do is the elders, um, the elders nominate. So we kind of identify and select men that we think um, are qualified to serve as elders, uh, and then we we lay that before the congregation um, at a members meeting. It 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 uh it it sits before the congregation for about two months, and then the congregation will come back and and affirm that. Um, and in that that two months, particularly, we're praying about that. We give the uh, candidate a uh, an opportunity to teach publicly. Um, usually, they've already had one of those, but we give them kind of another one, kind of intentionally telling the congregation, you know, if you're not familiar with this man's ministry of the word, like here's a, here's an opportunity. Um, we'll have him give his testimony on a Sunday morning during a, a worship service, um, and then the congregation would would then two months later, after asking any questions raising any objections or concerns, the congregation would, would affirm that. Just to understand your leadership um, in the sense of the responsibility of people, the people obviously have a, uh, a confirmation vote of an elder. Is Do they vote, vote on a budget as well, or is there anything else that your congregation has um, kind of authority over, if you will? Yeah, so we're, we're a congregational church. Um, so we're, we're led by elders. Uh, but we understand um, from our reading of scripture, there's some things the congregation is is charged to do, um, and then there's some things just in prudence that we've um, uh, decided for the congregation to to do as well. So the congregation uh, does approve the budget. Um, I think more importantly, in terms of scriptural principles, um, uh, the discipline and doctrine of the church mm. uh, we understand belongs to the congregation ultimately as a final authority. So the elders are. Are called to lead out on that, um, but you know, as we understand, First Corinthians five, Paul's furious with the church uh, for their refusal to deal with this man in sin, um, and so uh, both taking in new members is kind of a positive sort of first step of discipline, saying yes, we recognize you as a believer, um, and then ultimately, you know, in those cases where you know we need to excommunicate someone to say, you know, actually, your profession of faith. Uh, is really no longer credible based on your your life. Um, we understand that the elders will lead on those things, but that the congregation has to ultimately uh, do that that sort of heavy lifting, um, and 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 be responsible for it themselves. Overall, how has the congregation responded to these this this shift over time? Obviously, as new people have come, they know no different. But yeah. the older congregation, kind of that core group that you built around, how have they responded? And if there were any major uh, flare-ups that you would care to share that kind of give some insight to the, our listeners. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in any situation like this, um, 
yeah, I was just talking with a, a pastor, a church planter in the area yesterday and just, you know, just telling him, you know, look, if you're like, if you're not willing to be disliked by people for doing the things you think that are right, like you just, you can't be in this particular, uh, this particular business. So um, any, anytime you, you change things, as you, as you mentioned earlier, like people are going to be uh, riled by it. So um, we try to be respectful and careful at, about the way we make changes. Um, but there's that fine line that I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, Aaron, you know, from revitalizing your church, um, there's that fine line between kind of allowing someone's personal preferences to sort of stifle the church, um, and, and trying to be honoring to them. So yeah, we've, we've, we've cracked plenty of eggs making this omelet and, and, uh, yeah, so we've had, had people, uh, in those early days, get up and, and storm out of church crying in the middle of my sermon, uh, never to return. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, the vast majority, uh, of folks are, are, uh, really, especially the elderly folks are, are humble and they're, they're sort of surprised by what we're doing. Um, because, you know, they're used to a more maybe typical 1950s, 1960s Southern Baptist approach to church. And they've seen all the other churches in the area go kind of more, um, you know, attractional, seeker-sensitive model. And so I think they don't know what to make of like the uh, the the guy in his thirties with tattoos all over, who actually is kind of leading the church to be a more like a nineteenth-century Baptist church. Um, <laughs> so they're kind of they're kind of amused by it. And, sure, uh, sure. But but you know, the best the best story was this one elderly lady. She's going to be with the Lord now, um, but her name was Nancy. And uh, she was just a sweet, sweet saint. And uh, she knew all the churches in this area. She'd been, she'd lived here forever. And she knew all the churches. There weren't that many, you know, when she was growing up out here. And so she had friends at all the churches in, around the area. And, um, and after about four or five years, I was talking to her after church one Sunday. And she looked at me and she said, you know, Pastor Mike, she said, I think I understand now, like what, like what all these churches that are struggling, what they really need. She's like, I think, I think, like all along, what we just need was someone to like stand up and tell us what the Bible says. Mm. And I remember thinking, look at that, Nancy, like Nancy just, uh, Nancy just got it. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, that's in the end, that's, that's it. That's what we, that's what we need. That's awesome. That's awesome. I guess my question to you, just kind of coming back to the confessional end of it is practically how has being confessional, would you say benefited your church as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's benefited us um, just by I think giving some some stability, kind of at the core, at the kind of heart of the church. Um, so certainly, uh, when people have questions about about doctrine or practice or life, to kind of have a a, a historic document, particularly that we're all agreed on up front, um, just it's I find it pastorally so useful. Um, you know, there's there are times in counseling situations where I'll just you know, I'll pull out our statement of faith and say, hey, here's what, you know, here's what we, we believe about this. You know, it's like our statement of faith says, and, you know, kind of use whatever thing applies particularly to their their situation. And so, um, yeah, I think having that kind of uh, doctrinal clarity at the heart of the church really, really serves, as we talked about earlier, to allow us to have diversity on a whole host of other issues that I think ultimately commends the gospel. Mm. Do you see any benefit to being confessional for your family, for yourself? And if so, what would those be? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure I've ever thought much about that, but I, I, I certainly think that 
you know, for our, for our kids, um, you know, they definitely have grown up kind of only knowing one sort of stream of doctrine. So in that sense, I think there's, there's clarity. Um, you know, we use the, the, uh, the, the Baptist, um, catechism with our kids. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, hopefully if you woke my 10 year old up in the middle of the night and said, you know, what is regeneration? He'd say regeneration is a change of heart that leads to true repentance and faith. Um, <laughs> Yeah. You know, so I think in that sense, they benefit from just a kind of, there's a steadiness to that, I think, that mm. is, um, you know, I think I'm just sort of a his, sort of bent towards enjoying history. And so growing up in a, in a or being converted in a mega church where it felt like, felt like we changed everything every two years, um, there's just a stability to saying, you know, this is actually what, this is what we've been believing for a long time and we're going to keep believing it. And unless Jesus comes back, you know, people are going to keep believing this stuff. I have I have a real belief that those who are called to revitalization have a passion for history. It's just yeah. so God God kind of pours that out of us. It oozes from our veins, and it's just something that's uh, important. And I think uh, it helps us make that connection, and, and we enjoy that journey together with yeah. the church. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to spend some time talking about your newest book called uh, Church in the Hard Place, uh, Hard Places. And the first thing I want to bring up is you define poverty in the first chapter. Uh, you say, when we think about poverty, Westerners normally think in terms of access to resources. We have a so-called poverty line, an income threshold, that determines who the government considers to be impoverished. But then you go on to uh, um, to describe some some uh, the ways in which the poor um, describe themselves. And they use terms, you say, such as powerless, hopeless, loss of meaning, shame. Um, and you, I know you're taking that from when helping hurts, um, but kind of open that up for us a little bit more so we can understand in your context, how those terms, the way the poor describe themselves become um, more, more uh, a reality for you in the sense of being a pastor to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, our, our experience here has been working a lot with um, Latin American immigrants Um many of whom I think I mentioned before, almost all of whom, you know, fall below sort of the government's poverty thresholds and even some some of their homelessness thresholds. Um, but it's interesting, interesting, as I've gotten to know them, uh, they actually are living at a higher standard of living than they've ever lived in their lives for many of them. So if you take someone, you know, from war-torn Guatemala living on, their family living on less than a dollar a day, uh, and you put them in Northern Virginia and you pay them a hundred dollars a day. Um, that might not feel like enough to live on for me personally. Um, and I, I wouldn't want to make, uh, that little money, but for them, they feel like, wow, this is, this is the best they've ever had it. In fact, they're probably sending three quarters of their money home and living on, you know, 25% of their actual income. And so it does become a question of like, what exactly do they need and what exactly is poverty? Because, there's no doubt that they are actually poor, but it's not a sort of lack of access to resources. Like if they're sick and they go to the hospital, the government mandates that the hospital take care of them. So there's got to be something else beneath that, that we know intuitively these folks are poor. Um, and when you actually talk to people, it, it is that sense of isolation, vulnerability, um, you know, alienation, right? They're in this, they're in this country. They don't necessarily speak the language. They may have left everyone they know and love. So a lot of, you know, we work with a lot of Latin American teenagers or um, from the local high school and 
you know, many of them are here without parents or family. Um, they don't know, you know, exactly where they're going to be living, you know, this time next year. And so those things kind of wear away at someone's uh, soul in a way that I think we don't appreciate. And so the reason why that's important is that when we think about alleviating poverty as Americans and as churches, we usually just think, all right, food pantry and uh, clothing shelter. And th those things are great, uh, but, but it's really not addressing those deeper issues. And I think actually realizing that helps us as churches think about how to minister to the poor. Hmm. And in your book, you consider three pillars that really the book is built around. And the first you say is the gospel will spread. And you give an example in it. You say that Mez, who also wrote the book with you, he's from Scotland and here you are from the United States. So they're obviously the gospel has spread out Jerusalem. And then you remind the reader that they themselves are not reading it as uh, Jerusalem citizens. So there's this emphasis right away that you want to make that the gospel will spread. And why was that such a important focal point for you through the book? Well, I think it's really right at the heart of, of uh, the idea of church planting. So both, uh, so my co-author of that book, Mez McConnell, um, you know, and myself are, are committed to church planting and church revitalization, um, which are kind of two, two sides of the same coin. But, but it really, at the heart of it is this idea that the gospel is a message that has to spread, that it's not enough for us just to kind of, uh, you know, be uh, conservationists of the gospel. Um, you know, there's an old, there's an old uh, kind of canard about some Presbyterian denominations that one of them defends the gospel and the other one holds it out. Um, and, you know, it doesn't, we don't really get to choose, do we? And I, right. I don't know if that's necessarily accurate about those denominations, but, um, you know, to the gospel is something that we are called to protect. And obviously this is a, a podcast about confessional churches. And so that's mm -hmm. important, but, but it's a message that we're not, you know, we don't just bury it in the sand or, you know, in the hole in the ground, but, uh, we're given it to to spread it, and it actually is a message that, kind of wrapped up in the message itself, is this idea of it spreading. Wow, the second uh, pillar of the three, you say the gospel will spread among the poor, and you quote a couple of different passages. For example, you quote James two five that says, "Listen, my brothers, has not." Uh, God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. Another passage you use is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29, which reads, But God shows what is foolish in the world, God chose what is foolish in the world to uh, shame the wise, and he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The point being that the emphasis you see is that the gospel will spread among the poor. Why do you say that we should expect to see the gospel spread among the poor? particularly the poor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's sort of biblical grounds and, and also just sort of practical sociological grounds. But, um, you know, it seems like from, from the passages that, that you were reading, it seems like God's plan is actually to save the least impressive people on purpose um, because that's what glorifies him most. So if God just went around bestowing salvation on the, the rich, the good looking, the famous and the important, we we begin to think, well, that's what you have to do in order to to be good enough for God. But it seems that you know the sort of logic of the gospel has wrapped up in it the idea that you know, God's actually going to save the people that no one else would think to save, just to show that it's His His wisdom and His glory uh, at stake. And so I think that's definitely been our experience uh, through working with people. So um, you know, and just as a sort of sociological reality. Um, you know, if I have two people in front of me and one of them 
is uh, is poor, needy, uh, struggling with addictions, perhaps, uh, and the other one is is wealthy, uh, competent, not really experiencing any of the negative effects of their sin in terms of outward uh, consequences. You know, I have a pretty good sense of which one would be more excited to hear about Jesus um, and the message of hope and forgiveness. It's so true because uh, a number of years ago, it was back in the 90s, I was uh, working with the homeless in Tampa. And I was uh, always amazed how quickly the poor would identify with the fact that they were a sinner, that they needed a savior. And yet in those same streets were these huge skyscrapers where these businessmen were uh, in their three-piece suits, carrying their briefcases, walking into these buildings with their Rolexes on. And I would try to have uh, conversations with them. And there were even some that actually sat down and had coffee with and shared, but they didn't see themselves as in need. And there's something about having a physical need, emotional need that drives us to understand our spiritual need in Christ. So I definitely agree with the point that the gospel seems to particularly spread well amongst the poor. Um, there's a third pillar that you bring up, and it's the called, uh, you say, the gospel will spread through the local church. And this is the one I want to kind of camp out on for a few moments, because you say, uh, you say that it will spread through the local church because the church is God's normal means for spreading the gospel. Describe what you mean there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think um, oftentimes we, you know, have disconnected the, the task of evangelism from uh, its place in the local church. Um, but when you read the, when you read the new Testament, it seems like uh, the kind of pattern for evangelism is that it's going to be done in the context and by local churches. And so even, you know, it's significant that the disciples, you know, they get the great commission from Jesus and what do they do in order to fulfill that commission? They, they start churches. That's what, that's what they understand, you know, is, is going to be the way that God fulfills the great commission all through the world is by starting churches that will then take the gospel out. And so, um, yeah. So for us, we try to really, um, think about evangelism as a corporate task. So certainly individuals need to open their mouths and share the gospel. But in terms of equipping, praying, working together, you know, bringing unbelievers into the life of the community to kind of see the gospel in action, um, you know, we, we think that's something that actually is is far better than, like, say, somebody standing on the, the street corner handing out tracts or, you know, individual people going and trying to witness kind of disconnected from a local church. Um, but really, if, as we think about the gospel spreading in poor communities, what, what the poor communities need most are, are local churches that are spreading the gospel. I remember a, a number of years ago, I, I stumbled upon the quote from John Calvin that said, if God is father, the church is mother. And at first that was kind of bothering me because, you know, what is he doing? What is he saying? It sounds very Catholic. But as I wrestled with that truth, you realize that the church is what gives birth uh, it, in the sense that Christians become part of the, the church, and it's the church that has been given the mission, which goes back to your statement also in the book when you say, if the church is at the heart of God's purposes, then the local congregation has to be at the heart of the practice of mission. And that just really spoke to me that I think a lot of congregations view it as it's just a bunch of individuals' responsibility to be out spreading the gospel, but it's the church's responsibility to make sure that it's on mission together um, 
in that particular context that God's placed it. So I just really want to uh, con- commend your work in these two books. The 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 second one, Church in Hard Places, is a is a new edition. It's um, one well worth everyone's read and just to understand the 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 plight of of many and the need for the church to be on mission, not just to the rich suburbs, but in the communities where there is a feeling of true powerless, uh, powerlessness and shame and, uh, and, and suffering. And so I just want to commend your work there. I guess I have one question to ask you as, as we kind of close up is, is if you were talking to a young guy who was just graduating seminary and just about to embark on ministry, what kind of words of advice would you give him as he's about to set out, um, in his, in his new, uh, exp- expedition of what God has for him? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, probably I don't have anything really creative or, or special, um, in terms of advice, but I would say probably the two things that are most kind of, I think right at the heart of it, the first thing would be just wa- watch your own, your own relationship with Jesus and your own heart, um, more than anything else, because none of this is worth it. If you kind of shipwreck your own soul, um, and uh, you're actually not serving anyone uh, if you're ministering to them out of something you don't have. I'd say first and foremost, attend to your own relationship with the Lord. Um, and then in terms of kind of practical ministry, I'd say just uh, trusting the power of God's word. So, you know, you can read a hundred books with a hundred different techniques and tips to be a great pastor and, you know, lead your church into sort of missional glory. Um, but the most important thing uh, in principle is that God's work or God's word is at work and that he uses it by the power of his spirit to, to create his people. And so that's, you know, your, your, your main job is to be faithful with that work and, uh, and everything else will take care of itself. Mike, I really appreciate your time. Um, I'm a big fan of what God is doing in and through you. So um, just want to thank you for spending an hour with us and just sharing your thoughts on church planting and the uh, importance of confessionalism, as well as the need to make sure that we're not forgetting the least, the lost uh, of the world. And so uh, thank you again, Mike. Thanks for having me. Have a great week. You too. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook page.